Hey, Keystoners. Welcome back to Keystone State of Mind. It's me, Steph, your tour guide to the dark side of Pennsylvania. So today's episode is a part two. I'm going to skip all of the announcements and shout outs and all that, save that for the next episode and get right back into the story. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and listen to that first so you get all the background information. And in just a minute, I'll do a quick recap so everybody's back on the same page. There is only one thing we have to do. Let's get into a Keystone State of Mind. As always, I'll be enjoying an ice cold can of Keystone Light while I conclude today's story. Okay, so let's recap. Grady Stiles Jr. was born in 1937 with a condition called ectrodactyly, better known as lobster claw syndrome. Many generations before him had also had this condition. Grady grew up in the carnival culture. He was a sideshow performer. And he was kind of a big wig in this carnival atmosphere. In 1954, he married Mary Teresa Herzog, who for the rest of the story will be known as Teresa Stiles. Teresa had a daughter from a previous marriage. And she and Grady had two more children that survived, and sadly, two children that died in infancy. The Styles surviving children were both girls. Donna was average with no deformities and no form of ectrodactyly. Kathy, the younger of the two, she was born with ectrodactyly in the same manner that her father had the deformity as well. Grady was a terrible husband and father. He was horribly abusive and had a serious drinking problem. He wasn't just drinking a couple keystones here and there. No, no. He was drinking a handle of Seagram 7 on a daily basis. He terrorized his family with his crazy, strong, muscular lobster claws. He would pinch and poke and hit and punch. His wife, Teresa, took the brunt of these beatings, but his daughter, Donna, the one without any form of ectrodactyly, also suffered largely at his hands. Because Grady was somewhat jealous and resentful, of his quote-unquote normal child. In the early 70s, Grady kicked Teresa and his children out of their traveling camper while they were on the road with the carnival. With nowhere else to turn, Teresa reached out to her good friend and her co-worker in the sideshow, Midget Man, a.k.a. Harry Glenn Newman. Glenn already had feelings of love for Teresa and really 
felt bad for her for the way Grady treated her. So Glenn quickly jumped in to rescue Teresa and her children. The family moved in with Glenn's mother in Ohio and for a time were quite happy. Grady, being the fucking monster that he is, just could not let things go. He went to court without notifying Teresa, and he was granted an uncontested divorce and full custody of the children. Grady married another woman named Barbara, and they had a child named Grady Stiles III, from here on out known as Little Grady. Teresa married Glenn, and they also had a child. A little boy named Harry Glenn Newman Jr., also known as Glenn Jr. And that's about where we left off last episode. So now these two families are living separately. Grady and Barbara, their new baby, little Grady. Teresa and Grady's daughters, Donna and Kathy, as well as Barbara's daughter from a previous marriage named Susie. They're all living in Pittsburgh. Teresa and Glenn, they're living in Ohio. Teresa's oldest daughter, Deborah, she's moved out on her own. So it's just Teresa, Glenn, and their new baby, Glenn Jr. I know this is a lot of names And it's a lot to keep track of, but almost everybody that I just mentioned is going to play a role in the rest of the story. So it's quite important that we introduce everybody and where they're at at this time, which now we're at 1976. True to form, Grady was just as atrocious and abusive in this new family unit as he had been before. But now he had a drinking buddy because Barbara liked the booze just as much as Grady did. And they spent a lot of time like out at the bars and out of the home partying. This left Donna to care for her two younger siblings, both of which had actrodactyly and little Grady was just a baby at this point. And she was caring for her stepsister, Susie, who she didn't really like that much to begin with. By the time Donna was 15 in 1978, she was over it. She'd had enough, and she was looking for any way to get out of this house. She met a boy named Jack Lane, and I don't think she was head over heels in love with him or anything, but she saw this guy as a means to get her out of Grady's home. Jack Lane was 17 and he was in high school and he lived with his parents. He did have a part-time job, so this was an all right suitor for Donna at the time. And she ran away with him and the two of them hid out, you know, right in Pittsburgh. She didn't go very far, but they hid out somewhere for like two weeks. During this time, Donna would periodically call home and say, look, you know, this is what I'm doing. I'm not coming back. 
I'm with this guy. And Grady would say, I'm going to fucking kill him. I've got the cops looking for you. I hired a private investigator. When they find you, you're in big trouble. You know, I was trying to scare her into coming home. After two weeks of being gone, she was kind of getting scared. She knew that there were detectives looking for her, and she was afraid of getting in trouble with the law. So she did go home. She brought Jack home with her and told her father that she was pregnant and they were getting married. Now, that was a lie. She wasn't pregnant. She was actually still a virgin. But this was the only way that she could see that her father would let her marry Jack and move out. Grady was furious, but he did agree to sign the paperwork and let them get married. Donna didn't trust this. She was worried he was going to go back on his word, but he did. He signed the paperwork and he actually gave her money to go buy a wedding dress. They were just going to have a little ceremony on a Sunday afternoon with the JP and just have a few friends and family over. The day before the wedding, the whole family, minus Grady, of course, were out buying snacks for the little reception that they were going to have. They stopped home to drop off the groceries. And just as they were going to head back out to go to the mall to buy this wedding dress, Donna noticed that her father's wheelchair wasn't on the porch where it normally should have been. She asked Grady where it was, and he said somebody probably stole it. Maybe the neighbor kids are playing with it. So Donna says, well, we better go find it. So they all head out to go look for Grady's wheelchair. But Grady says to Jack, hey, why don't you stay here? I want to talk to you a minute. Donna and Barbara weren't gone for five minutes when they heard gunshots from inside the apartment. And Donna instantly knew this is going to be bad. Donna ran to the front door just as Jack was staggering out holding his chest. He fell down on the sidewalk and said, he shot me. And those were his last words. 17-year-old Jack Lane died right there on the sidewalk. Donna was holding him and she looked up into the window and there was her father smiling at her. Grady had promised that he would kill this boy. And he did. Barbara immediately called the police. The police showed up quickly with the ambulance, took Jack to the hospital, but it was too late. He died already. Grady told the police, yeah, I did it. I couldn't let my daughter marry him. Grady turned his gun over to police and he told him that he had just bought it the week before at a pawn shop in Pittsburgh. He needed it for protection. During the interrogation, Grady told the investigators that Jack bullied him and taunted him and threatened him and that he was afraid of Jack. He also said that Jack spoke in a derogatory way about his daughter and about the things that they had done romantically or whatever. 
And the cops felt bad for Grady. They saw him as this disabled man that was being taken advantage of by some young punk. They swallowed his bullshit story hook, line, and sinker. But to be fair to the police officers, he doesn't look like an imposing figure. And by this time, Grady had cirrhosis of the liver and emphysema. So it did seem like a average, young, strong, tall man could intimidate Grady. But we all know that's bullshit because Grady intimidated everyone he met. Not just women and children, not just his family, but all of those people in the carnival and in the sideshows. And we also know that Grady's story about Jack talking derogatory about the sexual escapades of these two teenagers, we know that was bullshit too. Because Grady still believed that Donna was pregnant. She wasn't. Jack and Donna had never gone any further than first base sexually. Grady didn't know that, and neither did the cops. So it was easy for them to believe that here's this older boy taking advantage of Grady's daughter, his only child that did not have ectrodactyly. And Grady told them, my daughter deserves better than that. And I'll do whatever I have to do so that she does not get stuck with some punk. And I think probably part of these detectives could relate to that. One of them actually did have a teenage daughter. So they bought his bullshit. Grady was arraigned and booked on murder charges, but given a really minimal bail that he made very quickly. Grady also very quickly got himself a big-time attorney. By now, Grady was not working hardly at all because of his health, but he did know a sideshow guy that he could go work for if he needed money quick, so he was able to come up with the retainer for this really high-powered attorney in the Pittsburgh area. This lawyer's name was Anthony DiCello, and when Grady thought that he was a badass, this Anthony DiCello saw right through it. At their first meeting, Grady showed up drunk, hammered, and it was like 11 o'clock in the morning. And he reeked of booze and was an idiot. As soon as he came in, he shook Anthony DiCello's hand. But using his, like, massive claws, he shook this guy's hand so hard to hurt him, to show dominance. DiCello was not having it. He says, oh, no, no, no. Don't come in here acting like a badass, being drunk. We're done here. And the next time you come in, you better be sober or I will not represent you. So Grady left and went home. It wasn't like Grady to allow somebody to talk to him like that, but he really didn't have a choice. And the next time Grady went for his appointment with the attorney, he was sober and he did not smell of booze at all. And he toned down his arrogant bullshit. So DiCello did offer to represent him and they started a defense strategy of self-defense of sorts. 
DiCello could not stand Grady's wife, Barbara. And this is actually what he had to say about her. Quote, she was ugly and she was very stupid. And she smelled. End quote. That quote has no bearing on the story. I just thought it was really funny and wanted to share it with you guys. So in 1979, Grady went on trial. Anthony DiCello presented a self-defense argument. Grady testified, saying that Jack threatened him. He taunted him and he bullied him. Grady said that Jack told him he was going to take over the family once he married Donna. And this was all so thin. It was just such a ridiculously thin argument. But the jury bought it. They did find him guilty, but they found him guilty of third degree murder. And at the sentencing phase, it was brought to the attention of the judge that no state facilities in Pennsylvania had the capabilities of housing a man with ectrodactyly and emphysema and cirrhosis of the liver. Apparently at this time, no prisons had wheelchair access or any kind of handicap amenities. So the judge agreed and said, yeah, um, I don't think we should imprison this man. And Grady got 15 years probation for murdering a 17-year-old boy in cold blood. Following his conviction and this 15-year probation that Grady was handed, he did kind of reel it in a little bit. He quit drinking so much. He didn't quit drinking altogether, but... He did stop drinking a little bit. He stopped beating on his family. Now, back right after the murder, right after Grady's arrest for the murder, Donna and Kathy were allowed to finally go back and live with their mom in Ohio. So at least the girls were out of the picture. So back at the home, at Grady's home, it it was Grady, Barbara, Susie, and little Grady. And for a while... Grady was cool. He wasn't a total dickbag, and he tried to be a better person, I guess. And from here on, I don't really know whatever happened to Barbara. I don't think she died or anything, but they definitely did get divorced. I don't know who left who, and I don't know where Barbara and Susie went after this. But she left little Grady in the care of Grady. And once Teresa realized that Grady was sober-ish and Barbara wasn't in the picture anymore, she kind of started missing him a little bit. Teresa had grown bored with her average life with Glenn. Maybe she missed the excitement of the carnival or maybe she started to think more about Grady when the girls came to live with her. But either way, she wanted him back. Of course, we know that it wasn't her choice for them to get divorced in the first place. Maybe he was just really her first love and she believed that he had changed. So she divorced Glenn 
And in 1989, Grady and Teresa got married again. Now the family of six, which consisted of Grady and Teresa, Donna and Kathy, little Grady, and Glenn Jr., all moved back to Gibsonton, Florida. They also started their sideshow back up again. Grady's health had improved since he had cut back on his drinking, and he now had two children with ectrodactyly, Kathy and little Grady. Now, Glenn Jr., although his father was a little person, Glenn Jr. was not. He was of average height. But he became a human blackhead. So one of those people that could, like, shove nails and shit up their nose or whatever. So that was his deal. And Teresa just, you know, ran the show like she used to. Selling tickets, calling in the carnival goers, that kind of thing. But the newlywed period and the happy little family was very short-lived. It was not long until Grady went back to his old ways, started drinking all the time, and started beating the shit out of Teresa. The abuse that she suffered before when she had been married to Grady the first time was nothing compared to what she endured at his hands now. Or should I say his claws? And the girls were older, so they weren't really there to help as much. Little Grady, of course, with ectrodactyly, wasn't a whole lot he could do. And Glenn Jr., now he was a big dude. He was like 6'3", like 280. He was a big dude. But he didn't really want to get involved in his mother's marriage. She didn't want him to. And for the most part, the boys generally just stayed in their bedrooms. Kathy had gotten married to a young man that also worked in the carnival atmosphere, and they were expecting a child. On one occasion, Grady was beating the shit out of Teresa, and Kathy attempted to intervene. She rolled her wheelchair in between them, and this infuriated Grady to the point where he beat the shit out of pregnant Kathy to the point where she went into early labor. Her child was born healthy, however, with ectrodactyly. This is when the entire family began to realize that Grady is getting out of control. It is just a matter of time before he literally kills Teresa with these beatings. And he's not above telling her, I am going to kill you. I'll kill you in your sleep. I'm going to beat you to death. These are the things that he would say to Teresa in front of his entire family. And Teresa began saying things to Glenn, like, something's got to be done. We have to do something about this. And Glenn Jr. was tired of watching his mother be brutalized. So he decided, yeah, we do have to do something about this. Glenn had a group of friends of an unsavory nature, one of which was a 17-year-old boy named Chris Wyant. Chris was a heavy drug user and a drug dealer, and he wasn't shy about his illegal dealings. 
He also wasn't shy about the fact that he would kill for money. And according to him, he had done it before and gotten away with it. So Glenn makes a deal with him. All right, dude, I want you to get rid of my stepdad. Grady's got to fucking go. Of course, Chris is like, all right, dude, whatever. I want 1500 bucks. Glenn Jr. says, all right, it's done. Now, later on during the investigation, it's found out that Teresa had been hiding money. When they were out on the road, she would she had a way to sneak some of that ticket money into her pocket in a way that Grady couldn't find out about it, you know, skimming out of the till, whatever. Meanwhile, it's her money. She can fucking have whatever she wants, if you ask me. Teresa had been squirreling some money away. So initially, Glenn gave this Chris Wyant 400 bucks as a down payment. Chris quickly bought a bunch of drugs and partied with his friends for a few days and did not kill Grady. So Glenn says to him, dude, what are you doing? You got to kill him. What the fuck? I gave you 400 bucks. That's the down payment. Chris is like, all right, don't worry, dude. I'll do it. Glenn says, it's got to be tonight. So later that evening, it's about 10 o'clock at night. Little Grady's in his bed sleeping. Of course, he's not little anymore. We got to remember this is, you know, these are teenage boys. Glenn and little Grady are teenagers now. Little Grady's sleeping. Teresa decides she's going to walk over to her daughter Kathy's trailer because Kathy's daughter Misty, the little girl that was born early because of Grady's beating, she was sick. She had asthma. She had some health problems. And Teresa wanted to go check on her. Glenn Jr. says, you better not go alone. I'm going to come with you. And Kathy only lived right out back. You know, these this is like a trailer park, but not all of these trailers are permanent structures. Like I said in the first episode, this is kind of just like a place for these carnival performers to spend their summers. So a lot of them lived right in their travel trailers while they were in Gibsonton. And I believe that's how Kathy and her husband and this child lived is in their travel trailer. So it's just basically in the backyard of Grady and Teresa's house. So Glenn Jr. and Teresa walk over to Kathy's trailer. They're not there for just a couple of minutes and they hear gunshots. Glenn says, hmm, we better go check and see what that is. At the same time, a different neighbor who lived nearby also heard the gunshots and went running over, ran inside and found Grady shot to death. He came out and told Teresa and Glenn Jr., you know, Grady's dead. We got to call the cops. So, of course, they do. Please come. And the police start asking the whole family, who would want to kill Grady? And everybody's like, hmm, I don't know. And the police were really confused because no one seemed upset. Not the kids, not Teresa, not the neighbors. Nobody seemed upset. They didn't really have any good answers for anything. And the house wasn't ransacked and nothing was taken. And as a matter of fact, there happened to be $1,500 sitting on the washer just out in plain sight. 
Grady's wallet was there. No money was taken. So the police are instantly suspicious. What the hell's going on here? And although nobody seemed to care that Grady was dead, nobody really admitted to knowing anything about it except Glenn Jr. He finally did come clean and say, it was me. I set it up. It was this kid, Chris Wyant. You know, I paid him money. This guy's been beating on my mom for years. I'm over it. Whatever. And Teresa claims she has no idea. She knew nothing about it. But why did there just happen to be the exact amount of money that was supposed to be paid to this kid laying out on the washing machine? And how did she just happen to know when exactly to leave the house? So the police did not believe her. And she was brought up on charges. So was Glenn Jr. and Chris Wyant. Little Grady really didn't have anything to do with it. And he literally did just sleep through it. But in an interview later, he straight up said that he didn't care that his father was dead. That he was a bastard and he was glad he was gone. And in this interview, Little Grady also said that the only thing his father ever taught him was how not to be. All three defendants had separate trials. First, Chris Wyant went on trial. He pled not guilty. He lost. And he was sentenced to 27 years in prison. There's really nothing spectacular to talk about there. Next, Teresa went on trial. Her attorneys presented a battered spouse defense, which I think is legit in this case. I I think if there's ever a good time for a battered spouse defense, it'd be this time. The DA didn't see it that way, obviously. You know, it wasn't in the heat of the moment. She didn't pick up a gun while he was beating her. It was planned. There was money involved. She had time to call it off. She also testified in court that Grady had been drunk that day and that he had beat her that day. She testified that he'd been drinking at the bar since 11 o'clock that morning. But this was easily refuted and discounted because it was a Sunday. And the bars in Florida on Sundays at this time didn't open till 1. And the owner of the bar in town actually testified that he didn't see Grady at all that day. Grady's blood alcohol level was not high enough for him to have been wasted the way she claimed. So these lies or falsehoods on the stand did not help her at all. She was convicted of first-degree murder, but she was only sentenced to 12 years and then like five years probation. So I don't know. All in all, not a terrible deal if you ask me. Then it was Glenn Jr.'s turn. And the prosecution actually offered him, if he pled guilty, he would get the exact same sentence as his mother. 12 years and five years probation. But Glenn Jr.'s attorney and Teresa both 
encouraged him not to take this deal. They encouraged him to go to trial and plead not guilty. And that's what he did. But he was found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. So there it is. The wild life and death of Grady Stiles Jr. He spent the majority of his life being a huge piece of shit. Treating everyone around him like trash. Literally got away with murder. And then when he was murdered, I don't know, inevitably kind of, in my opinion, like you can't act like that forever and expect somebody not to pop you. When he was murdered, basically everybody got this book thrown at him. Mm, kind of bullshit. You guys got to tell me what you think. Go to the Facebook page, Keystone State of Mind. Become a member of the Facebook group, KSOM Keystoners. Don't be afraid to post there, guys. Tell me what you think. If you have any opinions, thoughts, questions on anything I've covered, I would love it if you would share it there in the private group. And I'm sure everybody else would too. I am getting more members, but not a whole lot of people post there. Except, of course, my man Christian. Thanks, bro. You always got my back. So, yeah, don't be afraid to post in the Facebook group. I would love to hear your thoughts. Also, you can reach out at my email, keystonestateofmindthepod at gmail.com. Go check out the website, ksomthepod.com. I actually put a link up today on Facebook in the Facebook group and on the Facebook page. So just go click it, check it out. While you're there, if you feel like it, click the uh, tip your tour guide button. Throw a little money my way, maybe help keep the show going. Enjoy the last few weeks of summer. Have a great time, guys. And whatever you do, stay keystoned, my friends. Mm -hmm.